That's brilliant. Totally not true. <laughs> and I'm, we're waiting for the mothership up here right now. <laughs> Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to TMR, I think TMR 266, which is yet another of our movie roundtable sessions here at the Mind Renewed, in which we are continuing to discuss films that have some relevance to the various themes explored on the show over the last eight and a half years. So far, and I'm going to stop listing these when we get past ten, but we haven't got there yet, so I'm going to list them for now. We've discussed The Brotherhood of the Bell, Batman the Movie, Twelve Monkeys, The Illustrated Man, Silent Running, The Insider, The Shout, Groundhog Day some of which, of course, are very well known, some less so. But today, for number nine in the series, we are going to be discussing a film which I think probably everyone knows, at least 99.99% listeners will know. And that is Steven Spielberg's science fiction classic, Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977, which I'm going to confess up front is one of my very favourite films of all time, probably in the top ten, maybe even the top five, I don't know, but uh, certainly one of my very, very favourite, for which we are joined once again by our virtually resident, insightful and perspicacious film critics, Mark Campbell from somewhere, I was going to say London, but roughly near London, <laughs> uh, here in the UK, and Frank Johnson from somewhere in sunny California in the US, by the side of the road, I think. Um, anyway, uh, gentlemen, welcome back to the Movie Roundtable. Thanks for having me, Julian. Yeah, thanks, Julian. Good to be back. Thanks ever so much for coming on to discuss this extremely obscure film. Had either of you heard of it before we uh, prepared for this? Never heard of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> nope, no. uh, it's a new one for me also. <laughs> oh, excellent. So all these fresh thoughts should come out today. Uh, maybe we'll have a, a little bit of a chat about this long-anticipated preliminary assessment on unidentified aerial phenomena that's just come out, uh, which will be sort of fitting with our theme for today. So um, let's just start with a little bit of a catch-up on uh, all three of us. Then, um, how are you doing, Frank? Are you dutifully still wearing your your muzzle and uh, practicing your anti-social distancing in shops and and the like? Ah, well, um, so our dear governor has finally decreed it's safe to take your mask off. Uh-huh. I guess he sort of like stopped most of the decrees he's issued. Um, Supposedly, you're supposed to be able to remove the muzzle if you're fully vaccinated. Okay. Um, to go into certain stores. Um, most stores are okay. They don't seem to check you about it. Mm. There's one store I've gone to. He's he's really anal about it. He's <laughs> going to make you wear a mask or prove you're vaccinated, which I'm pretty sure is against uh, California law. But I, I need to buy something in there, so I'm not going to bother with it. And I kind of like the guy, so it's like mm. I'll just let him uh, deal with his issues, but. And he, he's fully vaccinated himself, too, so I'm not sure what he's worried about. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> are you, Frank? Presumably you're fully vaccinated are with your extremely safe gene therapy. I just identify as such. I, I don't actually have it, no. <laughs> I did not receive the vax, and I identify as uh, vaccinated. <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, and you've just, yeah. just, uh, <laughs> you, you just sent your car to the... Uh, the knacker's yard or something, haven't you? Is that right? You're, you're waiting for it to return as a single metal block or something. <laughs> yes, uh, it got into a little bit of some trouble, so I had to take it into the shop. You know, I think it's hard for anybody to believe that you're actually outside talking to us, but uh, you are indeed on the side of the street there. Um, Mark, um, how is your new house doing? 
New House is doing very well, thank you. It's in a place called Crayford, which is in Kent, yep. which is sort of on the border of London and Kent. Mm. It's a very lovely four-bedroom house, very close to a river, uh, about an hour and a half from the lovely. Thames if you wanted to walk along the river. It's very pleasant. Wow. So that is London, isn't it? I mean, as far as uh, a large proportion of the audience were concerned uh, in living in the US, that is yeah. London. I mean, people do say to me, oh, you live in London, do you? And of course, I'm in Lancashire, which is quite a long <laughs> way away, really. But perhaps not not in US terms. It's just around the corner. So, uh, yeah, you are London, basically, I, aren't you? Yeah, I'm still a Londoner. I commute to London. I, I work in London, so I feel I'm still a Londoner. Mm-hmm. Have they finished moving your boxes in yet? <laughs> No, they're all inside the house. <laughs> um, <laughs> now we've got about uh, six left to unpack, so clothes and books. Thanks for reminding me, Frank. I need to get some more shelves up to put some books on. Mm. But it's almost there, actually. We've done a lot. Three months. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I've got any money left, but, you know, we've, we've done a lot. <laughs> no swimming pool. No canvas swimming pool. No. No. Shame. Sadly. Yeah. So no nude swimming. No, no. We've got to get that in. Um, yes. And <laughs> you've got to tell everybody what you've named the house. Oh, yes. Go on, tell us. Uh, we've named it Dunyandlin. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, spell it out. D-U-N-Y-A-R-N-D-L-I-N. So as in Dunroman, we've Dunyandlin. Excellent. It's the ancient sort of craft. Well, I think you and I both practice, don't we? I'm not sure about you, Frank. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So there are films about Not it, mm, websites mm. about it, etc. It's, it's uh, yes. Yeah. So that's why I've named the house. It's a thing, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's in the Urban Dictionary. It is indeed. I'll put links to that in the show notes. <laughs> yes, and I encourage everybody to go and listen to the interview we had with uh, Campbell Adams about that uh, quite a while back. Uh, yes, caused quite a stir. Yeah. yeah. And how's your little one doing? He's not quite two yet. Is that right? He's ooh, yeah, twenty months. He's doing very well. He's getting everywhere. He's walking and he's into everything and he's exactly in the wrong place at the wrong time. And <laughs> whenever you want to be somewhere, he's there. <laughs> and he's fascinated by doors. You sent me a video where he was just laughing at you opening a door. Yes, he found that hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, he loves phones. He still likes doors and light switches and things and, and washing machines. Right. Oh, well, it's good to catch up with uh, both of you. Okay, let's get on to the film then. So, um, I mean, uh, I usually invite each of us to give a general impression of the film we're going to be discussing. But, you know, this one, we know it so well. I'm going to put the question differently. So let's talk about our personal experience with this movie. When did we first see it? What kind of impact did it have? And, you know, how it's sort of lived with us over the years. Perhaps that's a better way of putting things. So uh, let's start with you, Mark. When did you first see it? Did it have any kind of impact? And uh, how has it lived with you? Gosh. <laughs> so it came out in the UK March 78. Mm. I saw it pretty soon after it came out. So I would have been 10. No, I would have been 11. Right. No, when I, yeah, so I was born in six. It doesn't matter. You'd have been about 10. So, yeah. Yeah, because, <laughs> I mean, it, I was overwhelmed by it, I, I guess. Yeah. I can still recall the experience of watching it. As a, as a 10 year old I mean from the very moment it starts with that great big sort of boom mm. and then the screen goes white and then you don't you don't know what's yeah. going on what, what's yeah. happening and there's a storm and stuff and from that moment it got me mm. some of it went over my head the adult domestic stuff probably went a bit over my head yeah but I was absolutely hooked and I remember thinking you know when he's carving the shape of Devil's Mountain I think it was that the is that an alien is that what the alien looks like <laughs> I was very literal minded about it but uh, no I was blown away and it seemed like a really 
epic film. I mean, it's only t- t- two hours, isn't it? But I think at the age of 10, it felt like I was going on this really long journey and it was sort of hugely epic length. Mm. No, I was blown yeah. away by it. Did you have that sense coming out of the cinema that you could look up in the sky and you too might see something? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's certainly how I felt when I came out. Endless possibilities were suddenly presented to me. Oh, totally, because, I mean, it seems so credible that, you know, mm. the whole government side of it and the whole keeping things secret and <laughs> everything seemed mm. to connect with me emotionally and it also seemed to make sense. It wasn't like a silly mm. sci-fi film. It, it sort no. of... I mean, to say it's a science fiction film is possibly doing it a disservice in a way because you sort of immediately think it's going to be a certain kind of film. Mm, mm, I think mm. I must have seen it pretty much the same time as I saw Star Wars. It, Star Wars came out in the UK kind of around that time or perhaps yes. the year before thinking about yeah. it. So it's all that kind of Star Wars close encounters. It was very, very memorable indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say that I think, you know, in terms of special effects, I do think that Star Wars just took the edge off my experience with Close Encounters, but not in terms of mm. the impact of how it affected me. Because I mean, Star Wars is just fairy tale in fairy tale in space sort of thing, isn't it? But um, mm. this impacted me more deeply, I would say. Mm. And one of the things that I always love about it is that the realism about it—you feel like you're eavesdropping on one scene after another that's kind of unfolding in front of your face, and you're really seeing these kind of ordinary people, oh, yeah. just like you, sort of thing, experiencing the extraordinary. Mm. Which, of course, if you look at Star Wars, they are <laughs> nothing like no. you. It's it's a fairy tale, so very very different. Um, Frank. Same questions to you. What did you first see it? What impact did it have on you? I'm not sure exactly the first time because I think my dad used to once in a while play the final scene where the aliens are landing and exchanging humans and whatever. Hmm. I think I had seen that part first before anything else on tape. And then the 20th anniversary came out and my dad bought the VHS tape of it. And I think it was like 1997. And we all sat down and watched it. And my first impression of it, I, I think like you, Star Wars and you know, by that point, I had already seen like Alien and Aliens and Star Wars and all kinds of other mm. sci-fi. And so I think all that really took the edge off of what I was seeing. Mm. All the domestic stuff. I was kind of bored by it. And, I, you know, it's a well done and whatever. But I, at the time, I was really not that interested with it. But um, when I came back to revisit it, when you suggested it, I really actually enjoyed the movie a lot more. Um, I think the domestic stuff is actually the more important part of the story is like these are just normal everyday people like Mm. like me everybody in the movie all the extras and everybody looks like a real Mm. person you could walk outside and see at the grocery store whereas i think if they made the movie now like they'd probably have somebody from a modeling agency i mean (laughs) if you compare this movie to what he did with war of the worlds i mean everybody in war of the worlds looks like a model you know, and it's not quite as accessible for it, you know, but when I rewatched it, you know, a few months ago, um, Spielberg cinematography, like when there were special effects hit home more and was like, oh, wow, that's a really nice Mm. shot. And then like the domestic stuff really kind of is a better slow burn story for me the second and then the third time when I watched it yesterday. Mm. He's ever so good, isn't he? Spielberg at grounding things. I mean, Jaws or whatever. And he really grounds the characters and their domestic situations and they never look like they're acting. He always, as you say, looks like a sort of fly on the wall and there's so much Mm. characters talking over each other, having different conversations in the same room, but you still know what's going on. You get the sense of what's going on and it's very naturalistic performances yes, yes. all the way through That's right. not yeah. like a movie it's like you are a fly on the wall yeah yeah i think you did kind of the same thing with like et also like it's just these normal people and mm. you know kind of similar theme also too but 
I mean, yeah. ET is almost the sort of reverse of Close Encounters in the sense that mm-hmm. this is very a benign sort of meeting, and the ET, it's the government is seen as a very sinister, mm. sinister yeah. sort of you know trying to get the ET and take him away. What about you, Julian? Oh, um, more than I've already said. Um, apart from just being kind of blown away by the experience and coming out thinking there's something in the sky and all that sort of thing, um, because you know I have this background in musical because this was really before mm. I was seriously interested in music but I that aspect of the film really got me and particularly where there's a scene you know I'm going to call it the arena you know where they're all set up for the spaceship to come down um, mm. there's somebody who is dictating the musical intervals of the theme mm. you know go up a tone come down a major third drop an octave back up a, fi- a perfect fifth and all this mm. and it just struck me at the time oh wow you can actually describe musical intervals in a quasi scientific sense you know mm-hmm. oh wow the idea of analyzing something that's supposed to be art you know what i mean struck me even as a child i thought oh wow there's a depth to that yeah, yeah, yeah. i think sort of translated into a sense as a depth to all of this all the business about language you know they're constantly translating things weren't they from french to english and spanish and yes something going on there about communication so yeah, yeah all that side of it opened up to me when i was first seeing it um mm. which of course is deeper philosophical stuff which no doubt we'll talk about later and was not apparent to me when i was watching it <laughs> originally but yeah that, that sort of translation thing and yeah that was mm. interesting to me so okay let's just go through um some of the basics here and i'm going to also give a very short synopsis because mm. people will know this film so i'm gonna try and keep it as short as i possibly can so uh some basic details close encounters the third kind released columbia pictures 1977 written and directed by as we say the one and only steven spielberg although apparently the script had input from quite a lot of people amazing special effects uh, for the time supervised by douglas trumbull who uh, directed Silent Running that we discussed a while back. Mm. Brilliant musical score by John Williams. I'm not a total fan of John Williams, but this is, I think, just an absolute masterpiece. And um, something I think we need to get sorted out is that there are various versions which complicate this movie. (laughs) Um, Certainly Mark and I will have seen back in 78, the theatrical version came out in 77, the original version. And then in 1980... There was mm-hmm. a special edition that came out with various changes, which we'll talk about. Some good changes, some decidedly not good changes. And then as late as 1998, the collector's edition, also known as the director's cut version, where Spielberg did the version he really wanted to do, um, because there are various other TV versions and things that are not Spielberg cuts, yeah. um, so they don't really count. And I think we've seen one each, haven't we? Or something like that anyway. We've covered the territory. So anyway, a very brief synopsis here. So this is set in the mid-70s when it's actually produced. We get warplanes from 1945 in mint condition appear in the middle of the desert with no pilots. Very strange. We get uh, air traffic control witnesses aircraft almost collide with unidentified flying objects. We get a three-year-old boy whose toys come alive with no apparent power source. Uh, We see an electrical linesman on his way to deal with a power outage and he has a close encounter with a UFO as it flies over the top of his truck. And thus we follow the story of this linesman, uh, Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfus, as he becomes more and more obsessed with this extraordinary experience. He starts behaving oddly. His family thinks he's gone mad. Uh, he becomes obsessed with a particular shape, as if mm-hmm. under the influence of an alien power, and he starts carving this mound shape out of mashed potato <laughs> and mud from the garden. Wonderful stuff. Which turns out to be the shape of a particular geological, what's it called? An intrusion, I think, isn't it? Something like an igneous intrusion um, in Wyoming called Devil's Tower. 
And others have also been having this experience. A whole bunch of them journey to this strange geological formation. And this, in due course, turns out to be the location of a government-controlled and UN, United Nations-involved, so, so international, secret project to interact with UFOs. And the army, of course, tries to hide what's going on from the public, as they would do. It lies and says the area has been evacuated because of a toxic gas leak. But Roy and another of the fellow UFO witnesses defy the warnings and successfully make their way over the top of uh, Devil's Tower, after which they witness a massive arena, this reception port all ready to receive the expected visitors from another world. And before long, they witness UFOs, many shaped, many coloured, appear in the sky, followed by an immense, an immense mothership. Meanwhile, the government officials have recognised that there's something special going on with these contacted people, such as Roy, and they allow Roy to join a group of specially trained people to go and meet with the aliens. And eventually, after communicating with the uh, human researchers via a musical language, the aliens emerge from the mothership, and Roy is escorted into the ship, and after which, of course, he takes off into space. Okay, so I think that's basically it. There are lots that I've missed out, but I tried to do it as briefly as I possibly could. Is there anything that you want to add there that uh, was key that I've missed out? Sounds right to me. Okay. Yeah, sounds good to me. Okay, well, let's talk about the cast first. Um, Richard Dreyfus played Roy Neary, this electrical linesman. I personally think that he was absolutely perfect for the part. There were a number of other people who were... Mm in line first to receive this part but apparently they for one reason or another they turned it down i'm so glad they did because I, I can't imagine you know it's one of those things where you know you've seen it so how can you imagine somebody else but certainly looking at the names of the people who turned it down i think he was the best of the bunch for this particular role because i mean dreyfus is every man he's every person you know whereas some of the others what have we got here it's uh, steve mcqueen as first choice dustin hoffman al pacino gene hackman There's something about each one of those not quite every man you know yeah, none of those seem right to me. Mm. No, Gene Hackman would be interesting, but as you say, he's not every man, is he? Mm. And I, I like the fact that Roy Neary is not a failure, but he, well, he's certainly got a lot of flaws, doesn't, doesn't he, as a father and as a mm. husband? Yes. Got his own insecurities, obviously sort of basically seems to sort of go mad, doesn't he, as he's the only person who's seen this, persuading his family what he's seen as a UFO. Mm. Watching it again, you know, as I did the other day, you can kind of, as a grown-up, perhaps see it more from the other people's point of view, that he's going through a, essentially a sort of mental breakdown, isn't he? Mm. So it's funny, but it's yeah. also kind of quite disturbing. As a child, I remember just being sort of amused by it, but as a grown-up, you think, well, actually, this is quite disturbing for the other people in this relationship to see. Yes, that's and right. he does that brilliantly. I mean, it's sort of... He does. He can turn it from sort of humour to tragedy to whatever. It's fantastic. It's a brilliant actor. Mm. Yes. And of course, Spielberg played with that, didn't he? Because you got that scene that I think was deleted in the second version. Is that right? But it was in the first version, I think, uh, where he's digging up the garden, uh, mm. going mad and, and, mm. and, and chucking plants mm. and soil through into the kitchen, which is crazy, but also funny at the same time. Um, yeah, yeah. It was well handled. I just don't quite know why that was taken out in the second version. Anyway, um, what do you think, Frank? Yeah, no, I think his performance was really good. He definitely sold the everyman angle of things. And he did a really good job um, doing funny stuff, but also like um, it's just a little chuckle and then they move on. Like the scene when he's in the truck, you know, he sees the lights and stuff. His truck stops, everything turns mm -hmm. off, shine with the alien lights. And then his, um, mm -hmm. it moves away and then everything starts turning back on. His flashlight turns on and he goes, ah! <laughs> and it's like kind of funny, but like. 
um, at the same time, it's like, oh, yeah, no, I totally get it, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a wonderful scene. He goes through loads of different emotions, doesn't mm-hmm. he? It's, uh, yeah. It's great. Yeah, he, he, yeah. he moves from one emotion to another. Like, he, he can do funny, and then the next second, be you know, show he's, like, terrified by the same thing that made you laugh. Mm-hmm. You know? It's like... Mm-hmm. Um, and then intrigued, and he's got to spend... You just see on his face, I've got to spend the rest of my life finding this mm-hmm. out, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Superb. Yeah. Do you think there's anything childlike about him? This is something that a number yeah. of commentators have mentioned. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, yeah. I, I didn't pick up on it necessarily, but now that you mention it, I would say, yeah, there's some sort of like childlike sense of curiosity where he wants to mm. keep finding out what it is, you know? Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. I think so, because uh, Dreyfus himself said that he kept pushing for the role because he was aware that Spielberg was asking other people to do the role and it wasn't going anywhere. And mm-hmm. Richard Dreyfus sort of saw himself in this role. He kept pushing for it. Mm-hmm. And eventually, at one point, he said you, yeah. to Steven Spielberg, you need a child. Mm-hmm. But this is partly apocryphal, I don't know. But apparently, Spielberg then said to him, you got the part. Mm-hmm. It clicked. Mm-hmm. That's exactly mm-hmm. what I need. And, of course, Dreyfus mm-hmm. was perfect for doing that. Yeah. 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 What about uh, Roy Neary's wife, played by... Terry Gar, Spielberg saw her in a coffee advert and thought, this is the ideal suburban middle-class mum. What do you think? I thought she was excellent. It was a great partner in Mm. in those domestic scenes. Yeah, I think she's in Young Frankenstein, isn't she? She Yeah. So, I mean, she's uh, very, very good at comedy timing. I mean, this is not a comedy timing part, but the way she works with the husband in those scenes is... There's a brilliant tension all the way through, isn't there? There is. Thinking, well, how far am I going to let my husband do what he's doing? And I think she's willing to go along with it to a certain extent. But as you say, that comedy bit where he's sort of ripping up the the neighbourhood to make it is sort of the last straw when she leaves. But no, I think she's brilliant in a part that could have been very forgettable could have been very one-dimensional i think she brings a lot to it mm. um mm. and of course you know compare with the the other female character that roy sort of hooks up with who's very open and child i mean she's yes. closed in isn't she she's a sort of closed in adult she's yes. i mean you get the impression she's the one in the family who actually organizes things because really the husband is the same as the children they don't they don't <laughs> that's right you know that yes. he's a yes. big, he's a big kid isn't he like you said he's childlike he's a big kid he hasn't really playing with up. trains <laughs> yeah <laughs> making yeah. models so and, yeah so she really is long suffering, I think, in that in that relationship mm-hmm. in that setup. And I think mm-hmm. actually, with the second version where there's more family strife, there are extra scenes in there. I think that makes her more realistic. Mm-hmm. You get that sense that she's struggled with this for much longer than in the original, where there were fewer of those scenes, and you get that sense of well, yeah, she's she's giving up on him pretty quick. But uh, right, no, I, think- I agree totally because I, I think she really does cement this thing in reality because like having read a fair number of um ufo accounts when i was younger like you have these people who are encountering these weird strange things but at the same time these people still have to go to work and still have bills to pay and it's like i can see why she's like looking at this like okay who cares you saw some lights let's get get back to normal (laughs) you know and the people who experience it like richard dreyfus they just can't let it go because it's such a strange phenomenon for them Mm -hmm. you know Sure, and the great difficulty of explaining what you've experienced. He wants to take her Mm -hmm. and the the family up to the same vantage Mm -hmm. point to experience it again. Of course, you just know what's going to happen. It doesn't -hmm. doesn't happen, does it? (laughs) Um, Typically. Um, Apparently, there's a connection there with something that happened to Spielberg himself as a child. Apparently, his dad 
took him, when he was about five years old or so, took him out in the middle of the night, woke him up, said, oh, come on, you've got to see this, and took him to this place in a field somewhere to see shooting stars in the middle of the night. Oh, wow. um, yeah. And there were other people there as well. So I thought, oh, that's interesting, just like there were at yeah. this, this vantage point, there were all these weird people just standing waiting for something. So this actually yeah. is autobiographical to some extent in there. Mm. Mm. James Lipton uh, kind of alluded to that too. He had him on Inside the Actor's Studio and he said, because um, his dad was like an electronics engineer mm-hmm. and his mom was a musician. So yes. James Lipton was psychoanalyzing him saying that the ending where you use a computer to make music to talk to aliens was symbolizing that he wanted to reconnect <laughs> with his parents. So. Yes, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Yes. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of his life in there, isn't it? Well, he was at the yeah. time very interested in UFOs, wasn't he? And thought it was possible that we had been contacted oh, he now yeah. believes that such beings may exist but that we he's not so sure that we've been contacted but nevertheless it's, that's a big part of uh, how he was thinking at the time um mm-hmm. all right what about um francois Truffaut oh, yes. as uh, <laughs> claude lacombe i mean isn't that the most bizarre casting i mean it works it's superb <laughs> it does doesn't it but isn't it bizarre Yes, you know, I'm yes. going to make this film that cost a fortune at the time, I and mean, it's a hugely expensive film. Oh, I'm going to cast as one of the leads a director who's not an actor, a French director who can't speak a word of English, <laughs> and when he does speak the words, he doesn't understand what he's saying. He's saying it phonetically because I've read this. He doesn't understand what he was saying in English. That's going to be the second lead or the third lead. What? You know, what about, why not Al Pacino? As you say, why not Gene Hackman? That's such a bizarre casting choice, and it works. So well incredibly because there's yes. a slight sense of alienness about him you know dislocation about him isn't it because he speaks in a different language and he's so good he's so believable i think striding around and sort of he just oh yeah i believe he he is who he is in the film completely mm-hmm. He doesn't act, does he? No, no. He is just Francois Truffaut doing it. Um, <laughs> yes. It's so yes. weird. Do, do you know he was on the top of the list for the part, oh, no. as far as Spielberg was no. concerned? Um, yeah. He really didn't think he was going to accept the part. Right. It was done by Telegram or something, and, and Spielberg got a Telegram right. back saying, um, send somebody to sort out my wardrobe. <laughs> 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 and, they, of course, they were delighted by it, and it lifted the film in their, yeah. their estimation into the realm of art, you know. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Mm. It's absolutely yeah. superb. And last of all, I mean, the other people we could talk about, uh, Gillian Garley. We did mention her, didn't we? The, the, the long-suffering mum, I think, was excellent. She was a very last-minute choice, suggested by Harold Ashby, funnily enough. Yeah. And, of course, what about Kerry Guffey, who played oh, tiddly yeah. little Barry Guiler? Wasn't he perfect? Oh, perfect, perfect. Yeah, he did a great job. I remember watching the... Um I think the behind-the-scenes disc and uh, Spielberg talked about how wonderful his performances were and how they would trick him and entice yeah. him to give his performances. That's a fun story for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he would jump out and wouldn't he dressed as a bear, sort of make him jump. You get <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's all a bit like, would you would you get away with that? No, I don't know. It's almost child abuse, isn't it? Sort of <laughs> scaring a child to get the reaction from them. But, I mean, I think, you know, it works so well, doesn't yes. it? Just these, yes. you, you watch his face, his face, the expressions on their little kid's face is incredible. Incredible. My favorite scene with him is when uh, he sees all those lights and stuff, and he, he looks out the window, and you can just see the pure joy on his face, oh. and he goes, boys. And they describe how they got that reaction, but it's just like the perfect reaction you would expect from a kid, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Do you remember, Frank, what they did? What did they show him? Well, they, they showed him, like, toys, didn't they, I, I think? I don't know. I, yeah, I they, they had actual toys off camera, and they were, like, toys. making him float around or something. And, yeah, they did all sorts of tricks like that with him, yeah. Mm. Hmm. And, of course, he looks, doesn't he? Like, he looks, uh, his face, 
resembles yeah. the, the alien you see at the end. Now, that, I will be, yeah. I think, I, think, <laughs> I think they based the lead alien, if you like, the one that was sort of mechanical, not not the little kids walking around with the big heads, but the, the mechanical alien then just looks visually the same as him, the same. Oh, that's Maybe there's some sort of subplot fan theory there you could go into, because... Um, <laughs> it's a sort of classic grey, isn't it, I suppose? Kind of, yeah. Much longer and more spindly than, than is usually reported, but yeah. Mm-hmm. The children dressed in the costumes when you have all the little aliens out there that's definitely more your classic uh, yeah. grade yes, sure. yes. Yeah. bunch of six-year-old girls apparently wasn't it right yeah yeah <laughs> and i think there's yeah. outtakes of them doing dancing disco dancing and stuff isn't there oh yes at great speed apparently they they decided to have them go at huge speed but it didn't work it just looked stupid they went on roller skates at some point where they decide to have them on roller skates or do they make them up they would they may have done they were probably experimenting <laughs> with all sorts of stuff which i like the fact they were experimenting with stuff you know yes to see what yes, worked indeed mm-hmm. um, there was something very touching about this Kerry Guffey was was interviewed. You know, it's on one of these sort of extra things on the DVD. Mm. Oh, this is twenty years later or whatever. He's all grown up, and he said that uh, you know that scene where Roy is going off in the spaceship and um, Barry is with his mum, and, oh, and he's just yeah. he's just you know that's a lovely scene. He's just come back to his mum, wondering whether she would ever see him again. He says bye bye, you know. Mm. And uh, apparently, something was said to him along the lines of you know, well, these people are going away now. You know, you've got to uh, say bye bye to them. And in his little child's mind, he thought that. That it was going to be, you know, his friends that were going away. He was confused oh. about it, so he really was upset. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. As you oh, say, right. would they get away with that these days? But anyway, that was a genuine misunderstanding, apparently, on his part, which brought forth real tears and yeah. real upset on on the scene. Well, it always makes me cry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an awesome moment, isn't it? Mm. Yes. There's a realism to everything. There it is right down to the child performances. Yes. Which makes the unreal seem real, isn't it? It was incredible. Yes. Um, am I right that Roy Scheider, who was, of course, the star in Jaws, wasn't he, actually, is there in the arena and he just gets a little bit part for some reason? Oh, I don't know. Yes, I think it was. It's possible. I don't, I don't remember seeing him, but... Yeah, well, maybe I got that right. I mean, I was looking for Jim Broadbent, but uh, I couldn't see him. What? What? Well, Jim Broadbent's in everything, isn't he? So I thought, well, he must be in this. So yeah. <laughs> That's true, true. I mean, the guy who made oh, well, the scientific advisor is at the end of the film, isn't he? The one who uh, I I think Heineck. Pardon? Is it Heineck? J. Allen oh, Heineck. He's he's in it, isn't he? At the end, he is. Or is it Jacques Vallée or J. Allen Heineck? I forget. I get them mixed up because that's who the French directors. His character is supposed to be based on ah, right. one of those two guys. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yes. Whoever it is, yeah, J. Allen Heineck or Jacques Vallée, they get a cameo in the movie. Just a brief. Yeah, brief you see thing. him. He's got a beard, isn't he? Yeah, you're right. It's Hynek who actually gets the cameo, and Hynek. Claude Lacombe is based on Jacques Vallée, okay. the ufologist, astronomer Jacques Vallée, yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so J. Allen Hynek, the title Close Encounters comes from his classification mm-hmm. of UFO encounters. Yeah. So he was quite a big part of consulting for the film. Um, now, what was he? He was actually involved with some US projects, Project yes. Sign, Project yes. Blue Book, and so he has this classification yeah. system that he he developed when he got into ufology in a big way. Mm. So he developed a six-point system. Yeah. So initially you have nocturnal lights, okay. you have then daylight discs, you have radar visual contact, and then you get these three, which we're most familiar with, the close encounters of the first kind. Mm. That's a kind of detailed sighting of a UFO, quite close. Mm-hmm. And then you've got close encounters of the second kind, 
which involves some sort of physical effect. It's alleged there's a physical effect interfering with a vehicle or electronic devices, which appears, of course, much in the film, doesn't it? <laughs> interfering with electronic devices and the like. Mm. And then you get, of course, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where you have an entity of some sort is actually mm. present. So that, obviously that's the end of the film. <laughs> we get the connection there with, with them. Um, mm. But others have gone further, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, fourth kind, fifth kind, sixth kind, mm-hmm. seventh kind, uh, which is the creation of human-alien hybrids. <laughs> so I thought perhaps, Frank, you could, uh, that would no, be your territory. Could you tell us something about Close Encounters of the <laughs> Seventh Kind? Not necessarily from your personal experience, but uh, anything to say? I haven't heard of up the Seventh Kind. I've heard of Fourth Kind, which I think you know, encapsulates just the regular abduction, maybe, but I'm not sure so. on that. Yes. Fifth Kind, there's a there's a guy, I think, Stephen Greer, and he, I, I say it borders on a religious cult, but he basically says that you can in, he can initiate the contact with the aliens and get them to appear and whatever. Okay. And there's obviously more to that, I think, from a spiritual perspective, but um, yeah. that's as far high up as I have seen. Uh, maybe six or seven would be the hybrid thing, but I'm not super familiar with that part of it, but yeah. Right. You mentioned the sort of spiritual aspect of this. This is something I picked up, which is reading a little, it's on Wikipedia, about Jacques Valet. Okay, so this is the Claude Lacombe character. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was, well, he is all kinds of things, a computer scientist, internet pioneer, author, ufologist, astronomer, venture capitalist. There's hardly anything he hasn't done. And I'm going to quote here from the wiki piece. Valet proposes that there is a genuine UFO phenomenon partly associated with a form of non-human consciousness that manipulates space and time, the phenomenon has been active throughout human history and seems to masquerade in various forms to different cultures. Uh-huh. And it says uh, it's a form of deception on the humans with whom they interact. And I thought, oh, well, that's uh, rather interesting from just sort of being visited by aliens. It's getting into sort of Joe Jordan territory there, isn't it? With, yeah. uh, well, what are these beings? Are they something spiritual, sort of manipulating our minds rather than mm-hmm. just being something from another planet? So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so even Jacques Vallée is apparently thinking along those lines. Yeah, I think one of his later conclusions toward the end of his researching of it was because he had been researching it for a long time and and almost never could find like real physical proof of anything. And I think he finally concluded, if not, you know, conclusively, but pretty solidly that he was dealing with uh, interdimensional beings instead of extraterrestrials. I think he also picked up on the on the deception angle that they were sometimes not the most forthright of beings. Mm. Yeah, definitely gets into Joe Jordan territory for sure. Mm. Yeah, so for listeners who may not know what that is, we had an interview with Joe Jordan a couple of years back, maybe three years back or something like that, uh, where we were talking with Joe Jordan about his hypothesis that what may be in many of these cases encountered is something in the demonic realm, which one would understand from Christian theology. Very, very interesting hypothesis. Um, yeah, so um, what what was going on with that is um, Jacques Vallée, when he was dealing with the interdimensional stuff, I think that sort of affected how Spielberg kind of viewed the phenomenon too, because when you get into the last Indiana Jones movie, where they're dealing with what you think is aliens, um, that aliens are interdimensional. They travel between dimensions or whatever. Ah. And I think hmm. even Spielberg maybe has kind of changed his mind on aliens versus dimensional things, you know? Hmm. I mean, what's good about this film is what it doesn't say, and it doesn't say where they come from. No. Most films would say, oh, we've had signals from, you know, the galaxy M, blah, blah, or the planet, blah. It doesn't say anything about where they come from. No. It doesn't yeah. say, it, it sort of implies that they've been having some sort of conversation with these creatures, you know, through, as it turns out, coordinates, latitude and longitude, that there's some kind of big thing set up, but there's no info dumping 
at all, is there? And you don't need it. Mm. You know, you don't need to know which made-up planet they've come from, no, or whether they're interdimensional or, or, or whatever. Mm. That's mm. not to say that there's a hole in the plot at all. You just don't need that information. You can fill it in. Mm. It's so mm. visual. The stories explained through visuals rather than people standing around explaining the plot. There's very little. There's mm. no explaining the plot, is there? When I think about it, no, there isn't. No, and that's obviously deliberate. And I think one of the, oh, yeah, yeah. the main reasons why he's done that is to allow a spiritual in the widest sense of that Mm. word, a spiritual interpretation. I mean, it's clear to me that he is making these wide spiritual points, which we'll come on to. If you were to say they were from Planet X or whatever, it would ruin that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that would close off the questioning that's in in your mind, which can be much broader in spiritual terms. We will come to that. Um, I wanted to just say a little bit more about these versions. You know, we've got the theatrical version and then Columbia allowed him to add some scenes and cut some other scenes because uh, when he did the original version, it was a bit rushed because they wanted to get it out for Christmas, apparently. So he wasn't quite happy with it. So he added seven minutes and removed 10 minutes. So it turns out to be slightly shorter. Mm. But they insisted that in order to remarket it, that he should add um, the interior of the mothership. <laughs> it's kind of marketing ploy. Yeah. So there are a number of things that happen with this. He adds some family scenes of strife. He cuts, this is in the second version, he cuts a long, really pointless scene where Roy is at the electricity depot, kind of explaining why Roy gets to do the job and then encounters the alien ship on the road. Mm. Was that really necessary? No, that gets cut. Um, it adds the scene in the Gobi Desert where they see the great big ship which was great to see that. Um, it cuts the press conference with the US military, mm. where one eyewitness says he saw Bigfoot and ruins everything by saying that. Mm. Um, it adds a family strife scene where Roy is in the shower and it cuts Roy digging up the trees in the garden and throwing mud into the kitchen to make his model of Devil's Tower. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I say, it adds this interior to the mothership, so completely trashes our imagination about that one. Mm. And what I got from this, just looking at what's been added and what's been taken away, I got the impression that really what he was trying to do was kind of make it more serious and more adult by losing some of the humour and adding more adult elements, you know, the family strife and the arguments and that sort of thing. I'm, I think that works. I think it's a shame that he just cut out some of the humour. What really doesn't work is this inside of the, the mothership, <laughs> which he later regretted, of course, being persuaded to do that. And perhaps he had no choice in that. He wanted to have it released again. But uh, Well, it's just a block of flats, isn't it, basically? <laughs> oh, colourful, though. Yeah, it's a colourful block of alien flats. <laughs> I mean, that's it, isn't it? I mean, what this film has for me is a sense of wonder. There's a sense of wonder about the film, and that seeing that immediately takes away any of the preceding sense of wonder. Yeah. You know what it's like inside it, so, oh, okay, yes. all right, that's a bit boring. Anticlimax, yes. Yeah. yeah, and after he's just looked back in that wistful way to say, I'm going into something, I'm going into heaven, yeah. basically, and then suddenly... I know. I yeah, it's a block of flats. Block of flats, yeah. <laughs> Frank, did you get to see that part? Yeah, it was cool. I can see why he'd cut it, because it does take some of the magic away, I think, to show inside there. Um, it actually also reminds me um, of the final scene from uh, James Cameron's The Abyss, I think, where they had done kind of something similar, where they show the inside of the ship, and then it was, like, mm. cut out. It, it, it's one of those things where it's, like, it's there in some versions and not in others, because the director did it at the behest of the studio, but hated it and didn't include it. So, yeah. I thought it was really cool, but like I don't know what to think about it. I, I like I liked it, but I can see why why he cut it. Also, you know. Well, I think it's 
cool in itself. If that was the film, yeah. you know, that, that's quite nice. You know, a colourful block of flats inside a, a mothership, great. But in context, <laughs> yeah. I just think it doesn't work. And I don't think it works for the music either. I'm glad that he removed it from the collector's edition 1998. Yeah. Um, that's what he considers to be the definitive version. It's got a lot of the, the alterations that were made in the second version, but doesn't include that. And I think I personally think that is the best version. Uh, but yeah, musically, I don't think that works either as well, because I think those last eight, nine minutes or so of John Williams' score, touching on genius there, uh, working with film where you've got that sort of symphonic build up those last eight nine minutes just where Roy is joining the other red suited team that's been trained to go onto the ship you know he joins them all men um, and you get those all men oh yeah indeed yeah we'll mention that in a minute um, but you you know you get that when you wish upon a star which was the big thing in Spielberg's mind for the whole film that yeah. theme from Pinocchio you get that theme interwoven different layers of the symphonic texture that John Williams is creating there and it builds up and it builds up with a sort of romantic sort of Shimanovsky Scriabin kind of sound and um then you get a plateau where they actually meet the aliens and then you get another build up to the big five note theme at the end but mm. with this version this second version you get a sudden hiatus where you get all lots of dancey sort of music and you actually get a, an in your face statement of when you wish upon a star completely unnecessary mm. it's like in your face here's the inside of the mothership and in your face, here's yeah. the theme. We know that theme is there because it's been yeah. cleverly interwoven with all the instruments before that. Why do we need a big statement of the theme? In my mind, it visually, conceptually, and musically just destroys the end. So I'm so glad he took it out again. Oh, um, yeah. I don't think there's anyone who would disagree. I don't think there's any reviewers <laughs> who disagree with you. I don't think I've no. met anybody who said it was a good idea. And clearly he realised it was a bad idea because he took it out again of his preferred final cut yeah, so absolutely so we're, we're criticizing not him we're criticizing columbia pictures or whoever made those yeah i mean he decision. might have yeah who knows he might have thought i want to do it but he clearly he's wisely after the event decided he wouldn't do it and he'd, mm. it's nice to have it's interesting to have as you say it's a sort of quirky thing in its own right mm. but yeah mm. you don't miss it from the film yes you don't miss it i think it's a testimony to his judicious directing decisions and editorial decisions mm. actually yeah. when he's not under pressure when he could do things his own way yeah i mean do you think that it was wise to show that the aliens as much as he did i don't know it any other way so that's difficult to say mm. this is a bit like the shout isn't it do you want to hear the shout or not so well should you have, um, have left the aliens as a more amorphous sort of thing where people were looking at that but i mean as it is they're just possibly one of the slight disappointments of the film the fact that it looks a bit like a puppet mm. thing at the yeah. end i mean yeah maybe i mean i go with it i go with it because i think well they're only they, they would look a bit stringy but the way it looks kind of fake i don't know what do you think I kind of agree that they did maybe have a little too much. I think the kids, the, the little aliens are maybe a little bit too much. You have all these little aliens running around. I think it's obvious there are people wearing a mask, you know, but the stringy puppet one, um, on one hand, I think it works. On the other, it does look very fakey and puppety. Mm. I always look at the legs on it, and it just looks like, you know, when they have the Muppets, they're supposedly walking around, and they've just got, you know, floppy legs that just staple to the bottom of the costume. <laughs> I just think, oh, it just, it doesn't, I mean, I think it works so, um, still, because it's so weird. It's just, a, it's a very weird, strange uh, thing. So I kind of, for me, it works. Yes. Yeah. But even, even then, I think you could perhaps say, well, compared with the sheer professionalism of the effects throughout i think that's a weakness perhaps mm -hmm. in the film, for sure. picky. yeah 
There's one thing I noticed that I hadn't noticed ever before, just seeing at this time, is that, okay, you've got this spindly alien appear, and on the human side, you have the tallest and spindliest of the humans go uh, forward uh, as well. This really tall guy with very long <laughs> long arms, and I think each culture is presenting their spindliest and tallest <laughs> representative for some reason. But I don't know whether that was deliberate or not. Probably not. Um, Can we talk about the end scene a bit more? Sure. Because, again, I think when I saw it as a 10-year-old, I had problems with that, which I still do now, in that I think it's a brilliant image of the ship coming up from behind Devil's Tower. I mean, it doesn't make any mm. sense, but mm. coming up from behind it <laughs> rather than coming down out of the sky is just so peculiar and weird. Yeah. But then there's a particular shot always really bugs me where Neri is looking up and the ship is coming kind of almost over his head and he's right down the bottom of the tower, but the bottom of the ship is almost over his head. Whereas actually it should be way, way up above the tower. There's a really odd perspective shot that's wrong and it really annoys uh, uh, me. Uh, but yeah. the mothership coming up and then sort of turning over, it's, it's absolutely amazing, isn't it? It's it, And they linger oh, on is. the shot. Need to see it in all its glory. That is extraordinary. You've gone to all that effort to create it. Why not see the beauty of it yes. and dwell on that? Absolutely. And all the cloud coming round, you remember that? This is a long sort of moment where this sure. cloud that they created by dropping oil-based paint into it, mm. filming that sort of upside down and slowed down. Oh, wow. Um, cool. And then this mothership, because they think it's all over. That's the other brilliant thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They think that's it. They sort of shake hands and they, they think that's all done. And then this massive great ship appears. Yes. It's absolutely superb. It is absolutely superb. And the other thing I hadn't noticed before that is that you've got the shooting star motif, which Spielberg often uses yes. in his films. So there's a shot of the Devil's Tower, then this shooting star goes past, and then another shooting star goes past, which then splits off into three uh-huh, little UFOs yes. afterwards, which I thought was brilliant. Almost a joke, isn't it? Almost. It's sort of... Um, well, is that the autobiographical thing about taking, yeah. being taken by his dad out to see the shooting stars? The shooting st- and, of course, the when you wish upon a star. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the next line is, makes no difference who you are, which connects, yeah. of course, to the Roy Neary, the everyman and all that. It's, it makes no difference who you are. You're sitting there in the audience. It could happen to anybody. And you yeah. go out thinking, it's going to happen to me. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so lots of these things, connections that were so brilliant strung together is it a bit odd isn't it a bit selfish of his character to mm. it doesn't address the fact that his, his children are going to lose a yes. father well spielberg himself says he wouldn't have done that later he realized later on when oh, he matured when yeah. he didn't have the naivety of a young man sort of thing that yeah there's no way now having children that he would have done that no it's interesting because as a child when i saw it, i thought absolutely that's the right thing to do obviously yeah no question <laughs> yes. now as an adult you go wait a minute wait a minute he's literally sort of you know leaving every, all his friends his children yes. the, the woman he's just met behind and there's almost no dilemma is there there's no questions in his head it's just that's what he does and he does it no i agree looking at it as a grown-up with children yeah you definitely see that differently but i guess simultaneously now looking at it as someone in my situation you know recently divorced i'm like his wife already clearly left him with the kids to me and i could easily see that becoming permanent you know (laughs) i could definitely see that being the final straw and she just kicks him out altogether so it would be hard to address that without being melodramatic wouldn't it because um yeah i can imagine if that film was made now there'd be oh it'd be sort of anguish and torment Mm -hmm. about what you should do and you know all this really trying to play (laughs) on your emotions and drama 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 you know oh dear Um, yeah the film would be weakened by it, I think, because there's such a purity. Yeah. As you say, Julian, the moment he first sees the UFO, that's it. Yes. That's his life sorted, if you like. Well, he is a child, so he's not He's not a husband and father, is he? Yeah. Certainly by the end, he is just a child pursuing this, mm. this dream. And I think, actually, 
We're going to come to this in a minute, but this comes back to the spiritual theme. I think really on a symbolic level, he's going, whatever heaven means in this context, he's going to heaven. So he's leaving behind this life, isn't he? Mm. Because, I mean, you think about what he's actually going to experience there. What is he going to experience? He's going to see virtually no humans except this bunch of men in red suits. (laughs) Other than that, no human contact, no human culture. I mean, realistically, he's going into a kind of hell, isn't he? I mean, I what for for the? Re- I mean, how long is he going to live there forever? Or no, not going to live there forever, is he? But uh, he could be there. I mean, look at how, how long the people that like they found those planes from the forties. Yeah. He could be there for <laughs> yeah, forty yeah. more years. You know, he actually they would be coming back probably around now. Actually, if, if they're using <laughs> yes, the yes, timetable, yes, yes. yeah, he doesn't know what he's signing up for when he goes in there. I mean, it could be teaching him mental powers, or he could just be getting yeah. all the probes he could ever want. You know. <laughs> That's the whole problem with aliens, you know? Yeah. Okay, so when the point I was making was that really he's going into heaven. On that level of analysis, it sort of stands for going up into the sky, into the light, into sort of eternity, a timelessness, because, you know, with this, all this Einstein business, he's going up into heaven. So he's leaving behind this life. So all that question about leaving his children, you know, once it reaches that point, I think it just works symbolically in that way. He's just going off into, he's transcending this world. Um, we'll come back to that with themes in a yeah. minute. Is there anything else you want to say about this before we get on to themes? Something that struck me, I suppose, these followers have had this thought implanted in their mind of this tower. Now, yes, have they been chosen, if you like, by the aliens? Mm. Ah. Or is it something that we could all possibly be receptive to if we were had an open mind? Ooh. I mean, I know it's not said in the film either, but what are your thoughts on that? Who, whose thoughts? Either of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there are so many religious themes in here. That's one of them, I think. You know, the whole idea of being chosen. So I suppose what I mean is, is he being, if you imagine there's a magnet and he's being attracted to a magnet, so is it something yeah. as basic as that? Or is it of his own volition that he's going there? Or is it, where's his free will in that sense, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, I think you're going, it's a good question, but I think you're going too deep because I don't think the film actually sets out to no. be analysed like that. I think this is just piggybacking on lots of religious themes that are in Spielberg's upbringing as an Orthodox Jew. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you've got this theme of being chosen. You've got the childlike openness leads to the truth. So you've got Jesus himself, of course, as a rabbi saying, you know, if you don't change and become like a child, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. Um, You've got this being led by kind of spiritual force, a bit like the Holy Spirit, which is New Testament and Old Testament. You've got um, being misunderstood, like the prophets were misunderstood. You've got Gillian, who on Devil's Tower, Roy says to her, don't look back, which is Genesis. You've got Lot's wife looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. Mm. Devil's Tower itself is is that is that Mount Sinai, you know, with clouds and mm-hmm. the Lord descending and and mm-hmm. smoke and of course Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments is on the TV, isn't it, in the Neary household? Mm-hmm. The ETs are vaguely divine. Is Roy Neary Moses or is he Abraham or is he Elijah? And mm. um, when you look at Elijah, there's a quote here I noted down from Two Kings. Uh, Suddenly there appeared between them a flaming chariot pulled by fiery horses. Right away a strong wind took Elijah up into heaven. Mm-hmm. I think you've got all these associations here. And I think that the idea of being chosen is just one of them. Mm. Um, it's not expl- and none of it's explicitly biblical, no, no, no. but I think it's, it's, no. it's connecting in, it's sort of plugging into those things mm. to make those connections that we think in spiritual terms about the film that we're watching. Mm. So I don't think you can analyse it any more than that. Mm. I kind of agree with you on, on that. Yeah, you do have all those religious themes there. I think also with Roy's character, there clearly were other people shown as chosen, like they got the signal too to go there, but like a bunch of them got held up by the military, you know? Mm. 
mm-hmm. so he's one of the few people who was not only chosen, but he persisted through the obstacles mm-hmm. to get there, you know, so it sort of maybe represents a spiritual journey. It's like, yeah, more people could be chosen, but maybe, you know, like his wife, they just weren't open to the message, you know, like they're too concerned with the worldly material things instead of, you know, the spiritual thing, you know. I was asked the question once about Abraham, you know, um, was Abraham chosen? Well, why was Abraham chosen? And of course, Mm -hmm. were there lots of people who were chosen in inverted commas uh, for whatever reason, but Abraham was the one who responded and that's the one who therefore gets noted Mm -hmm. down in in the text, you know, so it could be that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you can make the same connection with, uh, you know, Christian theology too. It's like, you know, we all have the invitation to go if we, you know, accept Jesus, but like, how many people are accepting that and actively saying, yeah, I, hey, I'll take it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and persevering through the obstacle. So I guess you could even attach that sort of spiritual mm-hmm. significance to it. I don't think that was Spielberg's intent, but sure. Or maybe it was because a lot of his movies, they have the spiritual things that can kind of uni- like with George Lucas, they can be universally applied, you know. Definitely. Yeah. Well, you've got that in, you know, when the red suited chaps are being, they have a church service, don't they, just before they go out. Mm. And I noticed there were a number of symbols for different mm. religions. Yeah. There. So there's this sort of general spirituality there. Mm. So he's covering yeah. all bases uh, with this. Why wouldn't you? I mean, this is a film for all people, isn't it? So, mm. yeah. yeah, it definitely is for all people because you had, I think, was it, were they in India or like, yeah, yeah they were all the That's Hindus, right. they were singing the, the song yeah. where they got the, right. the music from. Yeah. It's very interesting. Mm. I remember when I saw that as a child, that bit in the church the chapel mm. i didn't understand film grammar if you like then i thought oh why are they in the church what's going on now i didn't see it as sort of continuation i just thought oh what's go- oh that's okay they're still carrying on with it fine yeah. yes it assumes that you understand that there would be a side chapel on the plot yeah, 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 sure. It kind of reminds me, too, there was a, a video game that I think had to have been inspired by this movie. Um, there's a Japanese video game series called Mother. Um, we got the second one here in America, and we renamed it Earthbound. But So in the first game, they show a ship rising up from the horizon behind a mountain, just like in Close Encounters. And then when your characters are, like, fighting the alien you sing this song to the alien and it, it hurts him somehow. I like it because he grew up hearing the song. It, it's, it's wacky, wacky game. But like, um, and then the second game you're fighting, I guess a more powerful version of the alien and to defeat him, you have to pray, you know? So it's like, I think maybe inspired that game. Yeah. You kind of have the same themes going along with it. You know, it's kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah. In 1975, there's a film called escape to which mountain Disney film, which I saw, so that came out a few years before Close Encounters. Yeah. And that's about a group of children who basically have latent psychic powers. And I think it's, oh, it's you know, years and years and years since I've seen it. But they get drawn to this mountain and there's a UFO, a UFO at mm. the end. This is where they're drawn to. Mm. And I remember that really affecting me as well. You know, it's more of a sort of like kids sort of comedy. But you've got the similar theme of being sort of drawn hmm. to a mountain. And the yeah. So I wonder if that was an influence Spielberg might have seen. Mm. And also, I think 2001 must be oh, yeah. at the back of his mind because must be. Oh yeah. You know, you've got that human at the end of the film is drawn through the Stargate to have a sort of weird kind of you know human alien star trial thing at the end, mm. which is not a hundred million miles away from what happens at the end of Close Encounters. You know, inside the mothership is his version of going through the Stargate. Ending up in the bedroom. <laughs> yeah, just well, in that without, weird bedroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> without 2001, you wouldn't have this movie or even Star Wars, so. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, we've touched on the music as well. I mean, Julian, you're a musician. Does that work, the music in it? Is it technically, yeah. are they talking about the right things when they talk about the music? 
Yeah, well, all the intervals were correctly described. There is one thing that I do have an issue with, the use of music as a language. And I know this fits into the whole idea of the difficulty of translation and people communicating with each other. And so the aliens communicating with humans. And so we've got to translate this musical language into something that we can understand and all that. Lovely ideas packed in there. But the issue I have with it is that there's no semantic reference point for what they know these tones mean or the intervals between these tones. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got this computer listening to all these intervals and then they have this big communication where you have, an, I think, an oboe and a tuba or a euphonium or something doing a kind of toccata. All this, it is lovely. It's, and it unifies the music and the action fantastically. Mm-hmm. Um, but the implication is that somehow there's a communication going on. It's learning language. Well, how can you learn language if the symbols that you have that represent the language, in this case, music or intervals, has no reference to any meaning. That always kind of annoyed me. And of course, it's Western music, isn't it? It's not uh, world music. That's true. People said to me, oh, music is an international language. No, it's not. No, it's not. You know, I don't understand Indian music or Japanese music or whatever. It's not. It's not international. No, No, and it's not a language in that sense at all. No. Um, No, it's often said, isn't it? I think he's playing on that idea, but uh, yes, it isn't. Mm. The only argument I would have for music being used in this context for like communication is perhaps they're using the mathematical elements of it to communicate. Yes. I I think somebody somewhere has taken the number pi or something and turned the whole sequence of numbers up to a certain point into a musical number or something. And it it sounds really interesting, actually, but... um, Hmm. Yeah, I don't deny that. There is a mathematics to music and the relationship with intervals and all that. Yeah, but, yeah. But the implication seems to be that it's somehow a bit like a, yeah. a communication language where you're talking about stuff, you're talking about real life, you're communicating thoughts, feelings, mm-hmm. ideas. There's no reference for any of those sorts of things. No. Okay, maybe they're talking algebra and geometry. And, and I don't know. It works emotionally, doesn't it? It works oh, emotionally. It does. Come on, no, it, it works does. emotionally. Um, yeah. I think it's also implied you, you get some level of telepathic communication too, mm. at least with the people who are going onto the ship, whether they're interdimensional or something else, a lot of people who've had the alien experiences and whatever say that they communicate with them by images telepathically, which you can dissect that how you will. But, um, you know, there might be something more to it than just the music. But, yeah, I think mm. cinematically they just have to show that because it, it looks cool and sounds cool, you know. Mm. That's, mm. It, it you does, know. absolutely. And I also wonder whether that was a connection with the kind of music that John Williams chose to write because it's very high romantic. It immediately came to mind was Alexander Skriabin, the Russian composer, beginning of the 20th century, and he wrote a piece called Prometheus, which is a huge piece, piano, orchestra, optional choir, and a colour organ, ah. which is very, very rarely used. Yeah. You know, we play the keys and it actually plays colours. You know, that's the idea. And I just yeah. think, oh, was that deliberately chosen because of that connection? Because obviously you get the music playing, don't you? You have all the coloured lights and stuff. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I thought it was quite possible. Mm-hmm. There's not much music for a long time. Mm. The music comes in, I think, with the appearance of the UFOs and more and more and more. But to begin with, the documentary style stuff, there's really very little music. Mm, that's true. It does build and build. And at the end, for the last perhaps 20 minutes, half an hour, it's almost you know wall-to-wall music, but it works perfectly. Not like current film music that's wall-to-wall that you just think, oh, turn the music off. Yeah. Don't music. <laughs> yeah. you know. It's very symphonic in that sense, isn't it? Because mm. what would you expect in a symphony? You know, you'd expect these ideas gradually to grow and grow and grow. And by the, perhaps not the absolute end, but towards the end, get the big tune, the big theme, and yeah. it follows that sort of pattern. I mean, that's my, every time I see it, I cry, actually, at the end of the film. It just right. gets me emotionally. Yeah, yeah. The bit that I always start crying on, the three little sort of UFOs 
hovering over the arena and they're playing the music dude so i won't sing it but (laughs) they're playing the music and then you know you immediately get the the first one then the second one and a really powerful Mm. response to what they're playing and the the lights because they come out like spotlights come out Mm. gets me it's it's like oh you know it goes all goose pimples and it's so i'm crying not not because i'm sure it's just because i think it's such a powerful piece of cinema it just works so well yeah well, I wanted to just go on a little bit more with the themes. I mean, we touched on the religious stuff, and I think that is really to bring out the we are not alone thing. Well, you've got the literal sense of we're not alone. You know, we're not on our own. There are you know other intelligent life out there sort of thing. But Spielberg, I think using these religious connotations, crafts a message of we are not alone in a almost a metaphysical sense. It isn't quite that. Because it never pins anything down. Mm. I mean, it connotes all of this, I think. We're not mistakes. We're not unintended freaks of nature. You know, we are at home with others who are also at home in the universe. We're intended to be here. The universe is friendly because the aliens are not our enemies. You know, there's this hope of some sort of transcendence because Roy transcends the earth. He transcends time in some way, doesn't he? This relativity thing. He goes up there and lives in light. And it kind of asserts these elements of hope and meaning without pinning anything down. It's more existential, really, isn't it? It's a sort of an assertion rather than saying anything to do with God or eternity in any definite sense. It just connotes all this sort of thing to say it's all hopeful and it's all ultimately wonderful and we should approach life in this sort of well, naivety is a good thing, you know. That I'm not sure I fully agree with that message, but I think that's the kind of thing that's coming over, and mm. um, he uses these themes to achieve that. I found uh, watching it again, it, I was looking out for this this time, that I was wondering, does anybody actually ever use a gun? Hmm. Nobody's ever shot at. I mean, even when they're running towards the mountain from the helicopter, they're not shot at. Hmm. When they try and get them off the mountain, they, they use some sort of crop dusters just to knock them out. They don't kill them. That's true. There are so many moments that could have been violently dramatic, if you like, and they're not, yes. they're not there. No, there's, and also, there is really no villain there's no person with an evil agenda. Mm. They're all doing things for essentially the right reason. Even, <laughs> yes, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the, the yeah. government kind of rightly keep it secret because otherwise there will be chaos. It's interesting. You know, they have yes. this cover story, which means everyone else. They don't intend to hurt anyone. As I say, there's no violence in the film at all. Which is nice. I, which I, yes. I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. Um, Although it's interesting, though, that he does that because he, he does say that, you know, originally it was going to be a sci-fi movie or sci-fact movie, <laughs> sci-fi movie whatever but it was watergate that changed it slightly and he thought ah you know government can lie and so he put that in as well yeah but yeah as you say it comes out as lying for a good reason which is interesting (laughs) yeah and there's so many moments where you could have had somebody raising a gun Mm. at somebody else or somebody even punching somebody or whatever there's lots of moments you know but nothing happens um Mm. And the bit where the police car, you know, it's a very funny bit, isn't it? Where they're following the UFOs early on and the police car goes off the edge of the cliff. (laughs) Um, um, But even that, I think the car is shown to sort of land and they're okay inside it and stuff. So even that, there's no... You know, in other Hollywood movies, like especially like Michael Bay directed it, that car would have blown up, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I like that. I thought that was really good. And he does the same thing in E.T. is that he didn't... Well, infamously, they reissued E.T. where the guys had a gun. And they changed it to a torch. I think they CGI'd a torch over the top of the gun. Hmm. Remember that? No. He didn't. He decided years later they didn't like the idea of this character having a gun, which I don't no. agree with. I think you should be able to see the original. But I, I just like hmm. this is a hugely dramatic film. But there is no what you'd think of as drama as people sort of you know being violent towards each other. It doesn't really happen. 
No, the closest you get is the sort of domestic arguments, mm-hmm. which I like. I think it's really refreshing. Yes, it is refreshing. Um, of course, discussing it on the Mind Renewed, which quite frequently talks about the fact that governments yeah. do lie. We all know that they do. It doesn't matter, does it, because it works in the film. But uh, actually, that's one of the things that did strike me as a child. Um, when I first saw that, they've got this cover story about the gas, and we all know it's false, mm-hmm. and we can see the animals that apparently died from this gas. And Do you know, that struck me as, oh, yeah, of course governments lie. That never struck me as something odd. Mm. It always was self-evident to me, you know, as soon as I saw that. Perhaps it helped to influence the way I see the world. But, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. It makes total sense. Okay, well, let's say something about this uh, Pentagon report. Oh, yes. Um, I don't know whether either of you have looked at this, have you? I've talked to a couple of people about it, but I've heard there's not really much in there. Maybe you told me that, but somebody had said that there's nothing really that interesting in there. And personally, I think it's a distraction from other matters going on. Yes, probably. So it's this Senate Intelligence Committee interim report. Is that it? Yeah. Yes. Preliminary assessment, unidentified aerial phenomena. UAPs, which makes sense, not necessarily flying objects, they're unidentified aerial phenomena. Fair enough. So this is 25th of June, 2021. So it says here. I've actually um, asked uh, Joe Jordan about this and just asked him what was going on with all the UFO stuff, but he, oh. he didn't really seem terribly impressed or taken with much of it. So I, I, if he's not really batting an eyelash, I'm guessing it's probably not really worth much. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. mm. Well, not really. I mean, it basically says that they can't rule out extraterrestrial explanations. They've got various categories, airborne clutter, natural atmospheric phenomena, United States government or industry developed programs, uh, foreign adversary systems, and they mentioned specifically China and Russia, surprise, surprise, or another nation or non-governmental entity, could be any of those. And then they've got a catch-all here called other. So it could be something other than that. And that seems to be, they can't say it isn't extraterrestrial none of these things are extraterrestrial but it doesn't seem like they're thinking it's likely but they are ufos um, they are ufos because they're unidentified that's right you're sort of saying ufos equals oh but they're not are they they're unidentified aerial phenomena so to say flying object is to pin it down mm-hmm. even more isn't it mm-hmm. i mean i'm not i think we've talked about this before frank haven't we i'm, sure. I'm not against the idea at all that they're not only might be life elsewhere in the cosmos, but there might well be intelligent, even more intelligent than, than we are life out there in the cosmos. The thing that I, I, I personally have difficulty with is mm. not the idea, but the probability that they are here in some way, that they've got that far, I mean, and that they're flying around undetected for decades, mm. not making contact mm. and abducting people. And, and all that kind of scene, it just doesn't strike me as likely for all kinds of reasons. Mm. You know, why would you travel at least four light years to mm-hmm. come here and not make contact? Yeah. Why would you go on abducting people for decades? You know, if you're that sophisticated, you only need to do one or two experiments, whatever you want to do, and you found out all you need to know anyway. You know, it's kind of a background probability for me. It seems unlikely in principle. Therefore, it seems like the least likely explanation, although I have no reason to believe there isn't a lot of life out there in the universe, you know, so. Yeah, but you're, they are aliens, Julian. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say if you go, went to another country and you're used to the etiquette in this country, you go to somewhere else where, you know, you go and have a meal, you know, burping is a good thing, for instance, you know, to show pleasure <laughs> and all these counterintuitive yeah. things that you've learnt over your life. I think culturally there are so many weird and wonderful cultures in the in the world but I don't really know that you can apply human logic to aliens. So who knows what uh, agenda, why they're doing it. Yeah. You're using a human logic. Well, we've got nothing else to use. Do you remember, I don't know if you guys seen Star Trek Four, but there were aliens that uh, came to Earth and they, they weren't looking for humans. They were communicating with, yeah. with the whale. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, I take your point, and it's a good point. But when you're well, I don't know. I mean, no, no, I know what you're. I mean, you know, a bit, I, I, no, no, no. I, a it's a good point. But when you're weighing up what you consider to be reasonable, all you have to go on is your own reason. I mean, when you say it's human logic, logic is logic applies universally. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you've only got your own reasoning to go on when you yourself are making a judgment, which is what I'm doing. But I agree. There's a possibility that some of those judgments might be fundamental wrong but what else have I got to go on you see it's still in my mind is still at the low bar of probability that's what I'm saying well let me give you another <laughs> let me let me ask let me go suggest on. to you something so say there is another civilization out there who hasn't progressed as we have so the only reason it's taken us so long to get where we are I would suggest is because we've basically been fighting each other forever mm-hmm. All, all the time but say there was a, a race out there who weren't fighting each other who actually got sophisticated much much faster than us who could then go you know almost light speed etc okay. but they hadn't actually advanced in any other way so you'll kind of assume that because they can travel vast distances that they're sort of wise and they're all knowing and all powerful why would they abduct random people and do strange things well perhaps um, in terms of their temperament they're warlike or, or they're strange or as i say alien they're alien i think again you're assuming that they're somehow advanced in every area they might only be advanced in the area of literally just traveling from one planet to another well i certainly don't think they're all knowing and all that sort of thing um but it seems no. more reasonable to think that they are advanced in more than just technological sense than it is to think they might be just advanced technologically but not in other ways because those other ways would very plausibly interfere with their technological development. I mean, you mentioned that we're always sort of warring against each other. If they were always warring against each other, they too wouldn't have developed to such an extent that they could do intergalactic. So I'm just, it's just a probability. It seems highly improbable that they would be such a species as to advance technologically and then come and not know what they're doing when they get there. It's possible, but unlikely. And the whole Mm. point of my argument is it seems extremely unlikely. There are much more likely explanations where I think it's actually very likely that there's life out there, and I think this is a point I've made on the show before, that I agree with those philosophers who say that actually on theism, it's much more likely that the universe is teeming with life because God could have done it mm. X number of times. Whereas on atheism, it's, it's much less likely that aliens exist out there because life coming about by chance is unlikely in principle anyway. So for it to happen more than once is extremely unlikely. It was extremely unlikely that happened once. But on theism, it could be, yeah, any mm. number of probably yeah. teeming with life. And I have no problem with that at all. Just not convinced probabilistically that they're out there behind the clouds, you know. Mm. Uh, one thought I've had about the alien argument, I don't know if mm. I mentioned it before, is... Oh, hold on. <laughs> okay. They're here, Frank. They're here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if either of you have read C.S. Lewis's uh, Out of the Silent Planet, but in it, the character goes to Mars, and the aliens he meets on Mars, there's like some sort of angel or being in charge of Mars, essentially. And hmm. he sort of, in so many terms, basically says Earth is under some sort of like cosmic quarantine, like it's twisted, it's fallen under sin, so like we're not really allowed to go there, or you're not even interested to go there, you know? So Mm. perhaps, I mean, even if there was aliens, I mean, yeah, you have the technical limitations, as Julian says, number one. Number two is like, do they even have the desire to go here? And three, perhaps maybe there is all sorts of interstellar life, but they're not allowed to come here because they haven't experienced the fall the same way we have it. I mean, that's all speculation. Sure, sure. um, 
you know. May I include a little quote that I thought was priceless from uh, Caitlin Johnson, and she's complaining about the US military thinking there might be a threat from outer space uh, here. A few extra dollars there for the uh, military-industrial complex. Um, anyway, it's, it's a lovely quote. I think she goes over the top, a bit over the top, but um, I like her style. Here we go. The idea that a civilization could attain a level of advancement comparable to ours, successfully learn to share resources and collaborate enough to avoid wiping itself out, continue maturing for a very long time, master interstellar intergalactic and or interdimensional travel, create aircraft that can operate in the way people who encounter them describe, and then fly across the universe to go kill a bunch of barely evolved primates for some reason is just absurd on its face, and even if such a thing could happen, it would have happened already. This is humans projecting their own particular madness onto a hypothetical species far more mature than our own, myopically assuming that our collective insanity is some kind of immutable quality of consciousness itself. Yeah, only she can write like that. But uh, I love that. But having said that, I really like the idea that there are aliens floating around uh, that we could come into contact with. I love this film, and I would love to see a UFO. I'd love to meet an alien. I've got nothing against it. Just ain't convinced. Just ain't convinced, you know. (laughs) Last year, I read a book uh, by George Adamski. Uh, do you know him? He's the guy in the 50s who claimed to be taken up. Towards, uh, yeah, he got um, taken up all the time, supposedly. Yeah, yeah, on a regular basis, yeah, yeah. Um, and he was the one who sort of these classic photos of the black and white images of flying saucers are the ones he, he took. And I read that, and um, Jesus was an alien. Uh, <laughs> yep. There's a guy called Furkin, who's a Martian who likes peanut butter sandwiches. <laughs> Um, this is you know uh, the moon the moon the moon has vegetation and trees and things and animals um venus venus has cows (laughs) Um, the moon the moon moon, and the moon has a business district um i don't know most of these people it's just a load of rubbish isn't it let's face it the people who've, who've been abducted by aliens i think this is like the guy who uh said he met bigfoot in the film isn't it yeah exactly yeah <laughs> i was gonna say I, I wanted to bring him up i'm like you know that actually would be a great side movie is i want to see that guy seeing bigfoot but then i saw like the way he his facial expressions kind of told me he was lying or you know yeah. telling a tall story you know yeah. <laughs> there's a film we must review called the man who killed hitler and then the bigfoot isn't there <laughs> yeah. I, I still have yet to watch it. I bought it, but I didn't buy it. I recorded it, not watched it. Yet. I've heard it's not very good. <laughs> no, it's hard to imagine it being good, isn't it? Well, I think we should review a film called Deathbed: The Bed That Eats. I'm going to try and <laughs> persuade you to review that film. It's superb. The deathbed, huh? And what about the swimmer? Should we do the swimmer or not? Did we mention nude swimming? We mentioned it once, but there is a film all about swimming called The Swimmer, isn't there? I mean, I wasn't very impressed with it, so you. You're welcome to talk about that. <laughs> All right. No, is not- there a nude swimming in there? That's the question. No, no, there isn't. No. That's it then. I'll strike it off the list now. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Gone. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks ever so much, chaps, for coming on to discuss, as I say, this very obscure film. Um, I hope people will. You know, find it somewhere in a second-hand DVD shop and uh, give it a watch and see if they enjoy it. And I hope we've encouraged people to check it out. But uh, no, honestly, wonderful, wonderful film. It's been great speaking to you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to our next project, whatever that might be. Not going to be The Swimmer, but what was this thing about the bed? <laughs> uh, the, bed, the, bed yeah. the bed that eats. Bed that eats. <laughs> oh, I'll give it some thought. Fantastic. All right, okay. okay. I'll, I might check that out. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay, great speaking to you both. Thanks ever so much for coming on.
Thank you. Cheers. Yeah, thank you, Julian. All right, I'll let you both go. Thank you. Ooh, thank you ooh, both. Ooh, mm. oh, sorry. Hello, Julian. hello, hello. Uh, won't affect, this won't affect you, Frank, but uh, Matt Hancock has resigned. Oh, well, I think that was the right thing, to be honest. Well, I thought it was the right yeah. thing before this happened, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, but the trouble is, of course, he's only going to resign. Nothing to do with COVID being useless. He's going to resign because he's groped exactly. his aid. That's all it is going to be yes. about. But yes. Anyway, he's resigned. Mm. It's very clever, actually, because Cummings said he should resign. So, of course, so therefore, Boris Johnson couldn't possibly sack him because it would have been doing what Dominic right. Cummings wanted. Yes. But now, mm. this way, clever, he can resign, and it's nothing to do with what Dominic Cummings said. If only we could get Fauci to resign. But if Fauci yeah. resigns, that's the whole of science resigning, though, isn't it, Frank? <laughs> no, all of science uh, res- resigning. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Good to speak to you guys. I'm going to go. Okay. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Good to see you guys. There's a massive ship coming up my window, and I've taken me up. <laughs> All right. Be seeing you. See you. Bye. 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 Show notes for this program can be found at the Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com. Podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajakov. Attribution non-commercial. Sharealike 4.0 International. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guests, Frank Johnson and Mark Campbell, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. Mm-hmm.